0: Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the law student facing the prospect of two decades in jail after helping asylum seekers who had risked their lives crossing the sea into Europe. Sean Binder has already spent three months behind bars in Greece after volunteering for a charity which sought to help those fleeing persecution or poverty by entering the EU, often on dinghies or other craft that were barely seaworthy. We've all seen what can happen when things go wrong. The bodies, sometimes of little children, washed ashore when their journeys have come to grief. But we also know that when the immediate shock of these tragedies disappears from the front pages... Politicians like to pander to anti-migrant sentiment. In the UK, the Nationality and Borders Bill, which Priti Patel's Home Office has said is based on the Greek model, would mean that anyone saving asylum seekers from drowning in the English Channel risks prosecution. Someone on a boat identified by the authorities as a ringleader could be jailed for life, which critics see as an extension of the UK's hostile environment towards migrants. Before we hear Sean's story, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't financed by wealthy backers or corporations. We rely for income entirely on people like you taking out subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, or the equally excellent digital edition. Find out how to subscribe at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Sean Binder was arrested in 2018, along with his friends Sarah Mardini and Nassos Karakitsos for, they say, doing nothing more than acting as lifeguards, trying to save the lives of asylum seekers crossing the Mediterranean Sea. Around 20,000 people have died making that treacherous journey since 2014 – And Sean signed up as a volunteer with Emergency Response Centre International on the island of Lesbos, or Lesvos, as the locals call it. Now he's standing trial on counts of money laundering, espionage and assisting smugglers, which could land him in jail for up to 25 years. He believes that he's being scapegoated for helping desperate people. This is his story.
1: My name is Sean Binder. I'm German originally. I grew up in Ireland, the coastline in the southwest. I am nearly 28 years old now. I'm facing 20 years in prison in relation to a prosecution that is ongoing in Greece that really began because I coordinated civilian search and rescue on the
0: island of Lesbos. Talk to me a bit about your own family history, Sean, because I I think that is relevant in this case. Sure,
1: yeah. So I am German-Vietnamese. My mother is German, my father is Vietnamese, my father himself, I suppose, undertook a journey of refuge that brought him all the way to Germany, just around the time of the American War in Vietnam. But to be honest with you, my father and mother never stayed together, so I was raised by a single mother who was, I think, very socially active. My grandmother and my grandmother's partner were both civil rights activists and You know, my grandmother was one of the first people uh, to join the Green Party in Germany. And I think off the strength of that, of their social outlook or their moral outlook, I I became interested in the the kinds of things that happen at our borders. And this is why I volunteered in Search
0: and Rescue. So take me to Lesbos then. Tell me when you were there and what your involvement was. Yeah, so... I had just finished my
1: master's in the London School of Economics, which focused on European defence and security policy. And this is when I realised that the European Union's policy response to one of the most severe humanitarian crises to befall the continent is one of securing our border against folks who are in distress. That is, effectively we have invested in security and defence uh, apparatus on our external border, rather than investing in, say, search and rescue resources at our external border. And this comes at a time when we have the so-called migration crisis. There is a relatively large influx of people coming to seek refuge in Europe because, indeed, there was a lot of strife. This is primarily Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria at the time, but also, of course, in sub-Saharan Africa, people traveling northwards via Libya. And so one of these primary entry points was Greece. So the, the transition between Greece and Turkey is was relatively short in terms of the Aegean Sea. It's only a couple of maritime miles. And because we had a deficit in search and rescue, as I've already described, the lack of funding, there was this gap created. And you know, through this gap is exactly where asylum seekers, people in distress will fall and potentially drown. And of course, the Mediterranean is an incredibly deadly sea, and it has you know we've arguably needlessly lost over 20,000 lives in the mediterranean because of our lack of search and rescue support and so this gap needs to be filled and i felt that given my policy background from my research and studies and given the fact that i'm a rescue diver certified i've got you know rescue training i've spent my life out at sea that i have both the policy understanding and the hopefully the skill set to go and offer some help and that's exactly what i did Oftentimes, we frame search and rescue as being somehow oppositional to the authorities, say so the Coast Guard, the Navy. That wasn't my experience. First of all, I joined a Greek search and rescue organization that specifically had a close relationship with the authorities. And with hindsight, that is with some irony, of course. But it was important, I think, to be part of a network or a structure or hierarchy that included the authorities because it is they who can do this job best. I think. In an ideal world, there obviously would be no need for any search and rescue because people wouldn't be drowning. In a better world, this would be done by a competent Coast Guard and naval service who can offer the best. But in the world that we live in, they don't have those resources or those skills. And this is why civilian search and rescue exists. I mean, I recall quite distinctly that the UK vessel, the Valiant, which is a border enforcement vessel, which was operational in the North Aegean, that is around Lesbos, at the time that I was there, once emailed me. (laughs) They asked me, "Uh, we've run out of supplies. Can you help us restock? And this is exactly the issue. There are too few resources. It's not that we're trying to supplant the authorities. It's that the authorities are not able to do this job without us. We provided the training to Greek service people To train up, to do CPR, they they hadn't refreshed their first aid training. These are really important and really basic skills. And this is exactly, as I said, why I felt that I and many others could help out in search and rescue on the island. And which was the organization that you joined? Yes, it was called ERCI, Emergency Response Center International. It's a Greek organization, or at least it was a Greek organization. It no longer is operational, of course. I joined it for two reasons. First of all, as I said, it had a close relationship with the authorities, and for the reasons given, that's important to me. Uh, Secondly, is that it is Greek. And, you know, in the context of volunteering, volunteerism, in the context of lacking agency for people on Lesbos, the lesbian community, the Greek people in general, feeling that they were losing control of a crisis that was really their experience. I felt it wouldn't be right for me to go and join, say, a random non-Greek organization when I could help out with Greek efforts. Now, I, I would say that all of us as Europeans have some responsibility. You know, what happens at the border, me being a European Union citizen, it happens in my name to some extent, you know, and but I don't in any way support the idea, and we can get to this later on, that... Our policies basically try to remove search and rescue in the hopes that it will dissuade people from taking these journeys. And that forces them into very precarious situations, effectively leading them down a path that could end in their drowning. And that shouldn't happen in my name. And that's why I felt it was important as a European citizen that even if it happens in Greece, that I have something to say about that. I have something
0: to do. So when did you join ERCI then and how long were you engaged in search and rescue operations with them for? I joined
1: in October 2017 as part of their rescue crews. They had two search and rescue vessels. These are RIBS, the rigid inflatable boats. You, you'll have seen them online, of course. And also a clinic in one of the larger camps called Moria Identification and Reception Centre. At the time it was housing, I think, somewhere around... 8,000 individuals. It was designed to accommodate about 2,000. At its peak, it accommodated 20,000. It burned down, of course, last year. Luckily, no lives lost. So we ran a clinic. So We had many doctors and medics. We had two search and rescue vessels, so search and rescue crews and uh, spotters. These are just individuals who would look out to sea and to make sure that nothing was happening, That and if it was, we could respond to it. I joined in October. I really intended to stay until the winter so perhaps until uh, late December. So it was quite a, a short thing I wanted to do. But in the end, as these things often happen, the coordinator had quit working. And so there was this gap in service provision, which needed to be filled because of course, in winter, strangely, there are many more crossings, or at least there were that winter. And again, although this is only a couple of nautical miles, it is very dangerous. And so it's important to have at least somebody to coordinate while waiting for someone better to take over. And because I had the most experience at that point and because I had some background, I decided to take over for a while until we could find a replacement, which didn't happen all the way until our arrest. So I was there from 2017 until the mid-summer of 2018.
0: And were you engaged at all in going out and physically rescuing any would-be asylum seekers? Yes, what happens
1: is you have a stretch of shoreline, which might be, I don't know, 15 kilometers long at the southern part of Lesbos Island, the part closest to to Turkey. And although it's only a couple of kilometers, this is really a primary entry point. If you can imagine that 2.2 million people arrived to seek asylum in Europe since the outset of the crisis, maybe half of those came through Greece and half of those came through that part of Lesbos Island. This is a really important stretch of land. So we'd always have someone at the shoreline there because at any moment someone might arrive. And it's important to have that because it takes the medics about 40 minutes to send an ambulance from the hospital in Mitalini, which is the town on Lesbos. It would take us about seven minutes. And so we're always at the shoreline waiting. And if we see somebody in distress out at sea, then we would either go out ourselves or call the authorities and they would go out. But over time, that relationship changed. Our operations were restricted more and more to not being allowed to go out to sea, and because we wanted to maintain a good relationship with the authorities, we obeyed that and didn't go out. So by the time that we got towards the spring of 2018, we were effectively only land-based at that point.
0: So the authorities said to you, even though there were people in distress, asylum seekers who might otherwise drown, you couldn't go out? Yeah. And we see that today as well. Since our arrest,
1: there have been no more active search and rescuers on the island of Lesbos. There is one search and rescue boat that is available to go out. But the authorities don't allow that boat to leave the bay. They ask the fisherman who operates that boat with his crew, will you go out and offer assistance, but only in your hard, small fishing boat, not in your rescue boat, The question is, well, why can't I take out my search and rescue? Would it be much safer, a much better piece of kit to use for this? Well, that would be illegal. Where would it be illegal? Define the law for me. Tell me where it says it's illegal. No, no, no. It's illegal. You can help us, but you can only use your fishing boat. And this is the attitude we've seen. We've kind of seen this this effort to reduce search and rescue without completely rejecting the idea that actually search and rescue is important or some form of it is important.
0: Could you give me... A flavor of a search and rescue mission that you went on most of the time I did absolutely nothing it's really important I
1: think at this point to highlight the fact that people who are making this journey you know they're survivors they've done it through sheer tenacity and willpower and my interaction with them is very limited I do think though that even if most people make it completely safe The fact that we are available, we have trained medics available, you know, we have doctors who are on call available so that when someone does arrive, and oftentimes it has happened, that someone arrives in severe distress, whether that's physical or mental trauma. What we have seen, for example, is folks going into cardiac arrest because of the severe hypothermia they've suffered. This journey would take you and I by ferry, you know, less than an hour and it'll cost us maybe, I don't know, 50 euro. This will cost uh, an asylum seeker thousands of euros, it seems, and can take days, you know, a day, a day and a half, two days, just stuck, not sure how to get to the shoreline. When one has been in that context at night, oftentimes in the freezing cold, one can suffer severe hypothermia, and that can lead to cardiac arrest. You know, people, of course, do drown still in that strait. We've often seen people who are you know, mothers in their third trimester who are experiencing stress-induced contractions are at risk of losing their child. These things are not uncommon. But I want to stress again that most of the time, thankfully, search and rescuers, while necessary, don't always do the flashy kind of videos that you might see online. That That's mischaracterization, I think, and it also adds the kind of polemic view we have of this crisis. And it should be viewed as as important and extreme, but not with folks holding babies in precarious situations or aggrandizing their own their own activity.
0: But presumably there were occasions when it did get a bit hairy, given the the treacherous nature of the sea between Turkey and Lesvos.
1: Yeah, sure. I
0: mean, one of the first moments, one
1: of the ones that really stick out in my memory is one of the first rescue moments that I had, which is actually a landing. We have our jeep stationed and it's filled with medical equipment that overlooks the shoreline. And at night, you can see the, the Turkish lights twinkling in the distance. Effectively, come straight towards this area. And so they'd be coming across, and maybe you'd only begin to see a boat because they're, they have no lights. Of course, they're terrifying dinghies. These are boats designed safely for maybe five, ten people that are crammed with, you know, 50 people. But you can't really see them at night until they're very close. And you might only be able to hear their screaming if the wind happens to be blowing in the right direction, that is, towards us. And only then would you see them maybe two, three hundred meters away, even less. This boat came towards us more or less out of the darkness. And we just managed to scramble down in time. We set up our triage area. Basically, you have this column of people standing either side that help direct folks towards safety because it's, it's quite, luckily, a boat landing is much safer than interacting with the boat out at sea, but it comes with its own dangers. Anyway, the people were beginning to disembark and it sticks with me because it was my first time seeing this, but like, I was just lying face down in the water, just in the boat. Now, luckily, we we I, I I hopped in, and anyway, the the point is that he was fine. I won't go into details about what exactly happened, but
0: sure, sure.
1: But um, yeah, um, that that was pretty frightening, and we managed to recover him, and, and he was he ended up being fine actually, but um. But yeah, of course, these things happen. Of course, I mean, it's it's dangerous. This is a dangerous journey. The point here is that, you know, you strip away its political context and, and you know, folks have animus against uh, the way that the migration crisis has been dealt with. And folks are fearful of asylum seekers or, you know, you what know, but, but oftentimes are described as fake asylum seekers or fake refugees. But the point here is that it doesn't really matter to me who you are. It's not a search, search and rescuer's job to identify people who are worthy of asylum. It's not really the job of a search and rescue to determine anything like that. But it's all of our responsibility to make sure that no one drowns. And that's the core point here. You know, you could be anybody. If I see anybody in the water in distress, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Adrian. If you see someone in distress... You would reach out a hand and try to help them. You wouldn't ask, who are they? Are they deserving of living here in Europe? Are they not deserving? It doesn't really matter. That's not up to you or up to me. That's decided by a competent authority.
0: Given the risk of crossing that particular part of the Aegean Sea from Turkey into Greece, did you ever discuss with the asylum seekers why they had undertaken that journey rather than staying on the other side of the shore?
1: Although I have interacted with many asylum seekers who had made that crossing, it wasn't really the moment to ask them about their journey. And I also didn't develop much of a social relationship, whether with other volunteers from other organizations or with asylum seekers. For me, I viewed it more as a work trip. So, But of course, you would speak to some folks who would present at the clinic and you'd have some time to chat with them as you're doing crowd control or triage or something like that. And people would just... You would know because they're coming to the clinic to get looked after because they might have been tortured, or due to some persecution have suffered uh, greatly or severely hurt in their journey. And all of this, I think, even without having asked them explicitly, why did you make this journey, can be inferred from your wounds, from your from your injuries or your trauma. That said, I think you know I, I try to be as neutral about this as possible, and I also would push against the idea that. And what I've done so far is frame asylum seekers a little bit as being, you know, victims of always being victims of torture and and persecution. By and large, that's very true. And I think that's exactly why the asylum system should operate fairly and why asylum laws and refugee laws exist. There'll be folks among them who who haven't experienced that, who might not have come across uh, as asylum seekers, who, who who might not be deemed as being asylum seekers by the competent authority. So there is that diversity as well, of course. And people leave for all kinds of reasons.
0: What about the impact on you? I'm just conscious as we're chatting here, and I can see you through a video link as you're describing the story of retrieving people from boats, people who have safely arrived in Greece. There is a degree of pain etched in your face. Have you been traumatized by this, do you think?
1: I think, I'm, I think I'm quite angry about it or bitter or I'm not sure how to describe it in an eloquent way. I think it's upsetting to me that what happens at our border effectively facilitates the loss of life at sea. It does not seem just or right that that should happen. And, you know, I think oftentimes when we do search and rescue or we talk about what's happened to us, we're often placed within the conversation of, you know, um, European values and where Europe is going, you know, being a liberal, being a conservative. And it's just, we often lose like the, the point, the core of what's going on here, which is that people are drowning. And so because we're put into this political conversation, I'm cast as this naive liberal snowflake who dreams of things that that are unrealistic. And, And I would push a little bit against that by saying that we aren't asking for, I'm not asking for anything more than what the European Union member states have already committed themselves by law to do. That is to offer people safe means to try and seek asylum and to grant them asylum if they're deserving of it. And that is not to let people drown in the ocean. I mean, every inch of every bit of international maritime law, whether it's SOLAS or salvage, the European Declaration on Human Rights, legislation by member states, all of that enshrines your right to seek asylum, a right to safety, a right to life. We're not asking for anything more than that. And so I find it quite upsetting that what I've seen, what we're trying to argue for is. Contextualising in this political discussion that really needn't to be, needn't happen necessarily, misses the point.
0: Did you witness people dying at sea who were unsuccessful in making the crossing?
1: I think the, 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 the worst, the worst that I, that I know happened is for example, the day we were first arrested um, in February and then released very, very soon after that, pending further investigation, and then imprisoned properly in, in August of 2018. There was a, a a boat went missing, or a girl went missing from a boat around the time that we were then in pre-trial prison on the island of Lesvos. And this was exactly as I mentioned earlier, the time when all the search and rescuers decided, okay, we're not going to do this anymore because we're afraid that we will ourselves be arrested. So this girl went missing, and it was for two weeks they didn't know where she was and then eventually her 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 body washed up somewhere headless this is a nine-year-old girl i'm not saying that i certainly couldn't have been the person to help there and you know oftentimes we might not have been able to help but it's so cynical to say you know because the argument of course is that civilian search and rescue makes saving lives more difficult such a cynical argument when there is no evidence at all to suggest that that's true. And to find myself sitting in a prison for trying to help somebody when a nine-year-old body washes up somewhere, I found that quite quite difficult to, um, to understand or to deal with. But in terms of personally seeing bodies floating, no. Thankfully I haven't i think but that's not because they weren't that they weren't out there it's because we weren't allowed to go out
0: to them you face a list of very serious charges including espionage forgery the unlawful use of radio frequencies if found guilty you could spend two decades maybe more in jail how did that arrest come about
1: we were as I mentioned earlier on this weekly face every single night in a jeep that was search and rescue jeep so it was kitted out with medical equipment and stretchers and stuff and it had ERCI logos so the organization's logos all over it and it was parked there every single night for two years at that point because the organization had been there for two years and Sarah Mardini and I, Sarah Mardini is a friend of mine and she is also charged with verbatim crimes We're doing a night shift, which basically means that someone has to be there from, let's say, the hours of darkness or usually around midnight to 7 a.m. the following day, looking out for these lights or listening for these screams uh, to try and render assistance. On this night, at around 2 or 3 a.m., the police arrive. That's really normal because we were shoulder to shoulder for a very long time. And they ask us for a passport. Again, normal. And then they begin to suggest that there's something suspicious about our Jeep and about us, which is unusual. So they take us in for questioning in the Coast Guard office that is uh, in the town of Mytilene. They take our fingerprints, they take our items, they search us, they put us in a cell for a night the following morning, they take me under armed guard, the Coast Guard officers and a prosecutor, an inquisitor at this point, to our warehouse, for example. Our warehouse was very large and it was filled with medical equipment and winterization equipment and various other useful humanitarian equipment. And they go through the boxes. They're looking for something, but they're not really clear. They've been really vague about what's happening. They didn't speak to me language I understood. They you know there's various procedural issues that I would I would take issue with and I will take issue with but they didn't indicate what they're doing but they clearly cast the net out very wide they didn't find anything they they went to my home they searched my room they searched my bags of baking flour to look for drugs again they were just really looking for something but not really sure what it was they took my phone my laptop they took Sarah's phone and laptop they took the organization's phones and they released us the following day, pending further investigation. There was no indication what exactly they were going to try to uncover. About five days later, somebody from the, one of the police officers had very wrongly leaked a story to a Greek media outlet called Defense.gr, I believe. And they ran with the story that when something like this, a German spy, which is me and his Syrian accomplice, that is Sarah, were caught in a stolen military jeep trying to infiltrate a naval base to steal state secrets. Ridiculous, completely ridiculous. But it was just a flavor of things to come. And we thought at the time, this cannot be what what eventually the police will be pursuing because we were at that point still very certain that this would amount to absolutely nothing because we had done nothing. And yet months later, so this was in February when we were first arrested, months later in August, we begin to hear this, this narrative building with the police investigators that there had been money laundering, smuggling, things like that. You know, it's not uncommon for the police officer to say things like this, just to grate or to to cause tension. You have to understand, I think that you know, there's a Lesvos context here where people are, you know, they're tired. They're they're rightly tired of the lack of support that they've gotten from Greece proper, from Athens, say. And so there was a policy of locking the islands down, which meant that the islands were really forced to deal with this problem without that much assistance from Attica or from Athens proper. And I think the way that that materialized was to have an oppositional approach with those folks who helped asylum seekers on the island. And so I think that's why we saw this narrative building and we thought it would just stay at that level. It wouldn't reach to an actual formal prosecution. But one morning when Sarah was actually scheduled to leave for Berlin, she was studying at the time. She was returning to university in Berlin. She was about to board the plane and plainclothes police officers surrounded her and arrested her. They said, Sarah, Sarah, we've got a couple more questions for you. Don't worry, you're on the next flight home. Just a few more questions, please come with us. Of course, she obliged. And I got a phone call saying that they're also looking for me. So it was about 7 a.m. at this point. And I was on the way to the clinic for a day's work when I rerouted and went to see her in the police station, sat down next to her. And from about 7.30 till about 12 o'clock, I sat next to her and asked the police officers repeatedly what's going on, because they wouldn't tell me what was going on. They wouldn't let me leave. I said okay look I need to go back to work then I'm going to get up and go and the moment I got up I was shouted at and told no you're under arrest put out your arm and so they handcuffed Sarah and I together took us to the courthouse where we were formally formally charged with a number of misdemeanors and questioned about what we will be charged with in the future which is quite a few felonies so misdemeanors of course are the these smaller crimes as it were and felonies are the more serious crimes and they are as you mentioned, the, the the misdemeanors are spying, forgery, and also the illegal use of radio communications. But the felonies are smuggling, being part of a criminal organization, money laundering, and fraud. These are very very serious crimes, and they carry with them. You know, if we get sentenced, it'll be it'll span into the coming centuries, and we'll have to do twenty. We'll have to spend twenty years in prison. But because these were such severe charges that we were facing on that day in the courthouse, it was decided that we should be held in pre-trial detention. Pretrial detention is... I don't understand how it really can exist with the maxim that you're innocent until proven guilty because you're effectively treated as a prisoner. I mean, I was handcuffed to a murderer. I was in a cell with convicted felons for over 100 days. There is no difference in treatment, which is... Exactly what happened. We were transferred to jail and spent—I spent a couple—a month there, and then about two months in prison on the island of Chios. And what were conditions like there? <laughs> well, I like to quip that if you're going to go to prison, do it on a Greek island. Uh, the sun is shining, you know, two meals a day. But to be completely honest with you, it's horrible. It's um, it's really horrible. There's are some are better than others. Obviously, you're not allowed to go outside. There is no semblance of hygiene. Of course, there are parasites like bed bugs. Uh, there's violence, of course. And what was the food like? I guess the, the point with the food is that it's just, particularly in HIAS prison, it was just insufficient, and that really characterises the entire provision for folks who are in in prison. You know, this this is this is what inmates are subject to. This is just a completely insufficient system that can't really provide them with any meaningful resources. And that leads, you know, to to more difficulty and more tension.
0: And just to be clear, you unambiguously reject all the charges. Absolutely. The charge we face
1: is espionage. Espionage because we use encrypted communication services and we listen to encrypted communication services. Those are the two prongs of why we're spies, supposedly. The first one, because I use encrypted communication. So the inquisitor, the inquisitor at the courthouse asked me, why are you using these high-tech encrypted communication services? And I said, you're referring to WhatsApp. I used WhatsApp. And that's why you think that I'm trying to hide information. Well, I'm sorry, my grandmother uses WhatsApp. Your grandmother uses WhatsApp. Everyone uses WhatsApp. Of course, I didn't put it quite like that. The point is that it was absolutely groundless. The second limb of the espionage charge, of course, is that we were listening to encrypted communication services. And she asked me, the Inquisitor again, well, why were you listening to these? How could you access them? And I said, Well, we couldn't. And this is verified because the police gave our maritime radios, which is what they allege we use to listen to the encrypted communications of the authorities. They gave it to the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard said, No, these are off-the-shelf maritime radios. They are unable. They are unable to access encrypted communications. The inquisitor then asks me, well, how could you access these private conversations? I said, well, they're not talking privately. The authorities, for whatever reason, maybe they don't have interoperable communication systems that are encrypted. They're communicating on public maritime radio channels, which as it happens, if you're be if you on a boat, especially if you're a search and rescue organization, you should be listening to those channels because on channel 16, which is a public radio channel, you hear SOS calls, Mayday calls. This is exactly the kind of bread and butter stuff that search and rescuers do. This is why we're spies. Preposterous. There's no evidence that we're smugglers, for example. There's no evidence that we've laundered any money. What money? How? Uh, So, for example, the smuggling charge, which I think really is the main charge here. People often view this as an issue of smuggling. They provide, I think, I don't know, 12 counts of of smuggling, supposedly. It's called facilitation of illegal entry, not technically smuggling. They cited it 12 times or so. They infer this from WhatsApp conversations in which I say, oh, there's a boat here. We better go respond to it because it so happens that the various groups all use one WhatsApp communication because it's the easiest way of mobilizing large numbers of search and rescuers at one time. They infer from those that I must be doing something wrong. But of those 12 counts, for like half of them, I was never on the island. I just wasn't. I, either it was before I had ever joined ERCI or it was because, for example, on the 12th of December in 2017, they say that I'm personally, personally, between the Greek and Turkish border, pulling people across. This is a night that I'm verifiably in London for my graduation. Much as I'd like to be, I cannot be in two places at one time. It is just absolutely impossible on their own evidence. Why then am I being accused of smuggling? And I think the reason being is it's a policy reason. And that is, even if they can't find any coherent link between illegal activity and bona fide search and rescue activity as we were doing, that is, bona fide search and rescue activity, there's a narrative that is formed at the European Union policy level that says that there's a pull factor. And this pull factor is really nefarious because it's a little bit, it's quite intuitive. When I first read about this, I was sitting in my little plastic chair in my cell in prison and I thought, I want to understand what's going on. I want to see why I find myself here. There must be some reason. And so I asked for as much reading as I could get on the research around this, on securitization policy, all of that. There was a Frontex report. For those who don't know, Frontex is basically the European Border Control Agency, so Frontex publishes a report in 2017, a risk analysis report, and it says, well, search and rescuers probably amount to a pull factor. And I thought, oh shit, how naive am I being? The pull factor says that whether they mean it or not, search and rescuers make the journey that bit easier for smugglers to sell to asylum seekers because they make it safer. And by making it safer, they make it easier to sell smuggling to asylum seekers. And therefore, they exacerbate smuggling and also exacerbate the amount of lives lost at sea. And I thought, my God, what I'm doing is so naive. I think that I'm helping somebody. I'm actually making it so much worse because it's quite intuitive. You know, if there's search and in the water, then people might know it and so they'll travel through it. You literally read any actual research on this and I don't take my word for it. Like, feel free to, to search up anywhere on, on Google, for example, type in poll factor research in Mediterranean and you will pull up, So much data on this, and none of it, not a single bit of it, supports the idea of the pull factor. Because there is no correlation. There's neither a positive nor a negative correlation between the amount of rescue that's happening in the part of the water and the amount of people traveling through it. There just isn't. And yet it's pervasive. It sticks. And I think that's the reason that we see these prosecutions. Because there's an attempt to try and stop search and rescuers because they believe it will stop smuggling. And this is really coherent and this makes a lot of sense because as I was saying at the beginning, you know, my focus, my research focus prior to going to search and rescue was in defense and security policy. And and indeed, the European Union invests much more money into securing its border against smuggling. That is, since 2015, we view this crisis not as a humanitarian crisis, but as a crisis of smuggling, illegal activity. And so we really view everything through the paradigm of illegal activity. But the ironic thing here is, if you truly wanted to stop smuggling. And it's worth mentioning before I get into this that, you know, as a search and rescuer, I don't support smuggling. The, the fundamental thing that search and rescuers want is no one to drown. I mean, all of us should want that, really. But, you know, the search and rescuer in particular is focused on making sure that people aren't hurt or drowning. I've seen the boats that's, that smugglers will push asylum seekers into. These are terrifying dinghies. These are not safe. These are people who are not wearing any life jackets. These are little babies holding onto plastic bags that are empty because it might support some kind of flotation. It is just terrifying. Smugglers are not something that you would want to support if your aim is search and rescue. Anyway, the point here is that when we secure our border against smugglers, we actually create the need for smuggling. To be an asylum seeker in Europe, you need to have the The right documentation. So you need to be in Europe for me to be an asylum seeker. I need to come to the territory because you can only seek asylum once you're in the territory of the would-be host state. It is illegal to be in Europe without the correct documentation. You know, you might have the correct passport or visa. I have the correct passport. You need to have the right documentation. And thirdly, we don't give out that correct documentation, such as visas, to asylum seekers. So we force them to come into the territory, and we secure our border. What does that mean? That means we force people into the hands of smugglers. By securing our border against asylum seekers, we create the need for smuggling. So in many ways, if the European Union actually wanted to stop smuggling, then we'd have to address that fundamental issue. But right now, it's breeding the need for smuggling, criminalizing search and rescuers for supposedly doing that, and all the while, what's happening is that people
0: are drowning. You've had support in your defense from organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty. What do you think is really going on with your prosecution?
1: You know, there's a risk of becoming overly conspiratorial here. I, I couldn't tell you what it is, like, why is this happening? It, it seems to me impossible to argue that, well, Sean must have been smuggling on a night in which he literally wasn't on the island. It's impossible to argue that I didn't call, the authorities, when I literally, on their own evidence, clearly did. I, why? How? I don't understand. I honestly couldn't tell you, and I, I don't think it's... It's. One could speculate.
0: Do you think you're being scapegoated in order to deter other search and rescuers? Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely it. Because there is this pole factor logic, this idea that we need to stop search and rescuers, then we'll, we'll criminalise them. We will embroil we'll them in incredibly lengthy prosecution, incredibly expensive prosecutions, to debilitate. and They can't do anything. And that's what we're seeing. Our prosecution is effectively a chill factor. It stops all the other search and rescuers from being active. But it's really worth noting that this this isn't isolated. I was part of Resoma, which is a research platform funded by the European Union that focuses on migration, integration, and asylum. And our particular focus was on criminalization relating to solidarity. So anybody who acts in a humanitarian capacity vis-a-vis and or vis-a-vis asylum seekers. We finished our research in 2019, but there was about 180 individuals at the time, European citizens, who were being criminalized for offering assistance. You know, that's folks like me who did search and rescue. Those are pastors who let, you know, asylum seekers sleep on their church pews during storms. These are people who have just handed out water. We see a concerted effort here to try and stop search and rescue and other humanitarian forms of help being
0: offered to folks who are most vulnerable in society. And you now live in the UK, in London, and Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, is proposing in the Nationality and Borders Bill to introduce legislation, which sounds very similar to that under which you're being prosecuted in Greece, whereby somebody who assists a would-be asylum seeker in the UK risks themselves being criminalized, being branded a people smuggler, a human trafficker?
1: Yeah, for the same reasons that I've discussed already, I would caution the logic behind this. The idea that you can stop smuggling by further criminalizing people who are undertaking journeys and for those who try to help them doesn't appear to me to be effective at all. There's no evidence suggestion that it does limit smuggling. It seems to only exacerbate smuggling. The way that you would overcome this is by overcoming the need to seek
0: asylum, perhaps, or by offering safe means of doing so. What has been the impact of all this upon you? You are a law student, and in order to qualify as a lawyer, as a solicitor, barrister, whatever, you need to have a, a clean criminal record. This is exactly
1: the issue, I think, you know. The most important cost for prosecutions like this, like mine, is that it stops other people from engaging in important work. But of course, there's a personal cost here. And that is, you know, it's hugely expensive to argue that you're innocent. It just is. And of course, it has been, you know, psychologically very difficult to get to grips with why I faced 20 years in prison for doing something that I think anybody would do, ought to do, that is helping someone in distress. And then, of course, you know, I, I try to be as transparent as possible. I always am forthcoming with employers that maybe our HR department would be interested in knowing that I'm being charged with very serious crimes, all of which I reject the veracity of, but I am being charged with them. And I might, even if you believe me, I might, or if you've looked at the research and conclude yourself that on, on balance, I'm very likely not guilty, you might still say, well, I'm not going to hire you because you might disappear for 20 years in a month, in a year, in two years, in 10 years. There's no security there. And that means that I'm left very insecure as well with my future. And as you said, you know, to be called to the bar and I'd like to pursue the bar, the one silver lining from all of this is that I've realized how important the law is and to respect the law. And I mean that, you know, not ironically, I mean, it's so important that we as individuals that the countries we live in, that the systems that we construct to govern our lives, that they respect the law, including human rights law, including our our fundamental rights. And so, you know, I I want to pursue a career at the bar. One of the tests there is are you fit and proper? And fitness and properness is determined by not being investigated for horrendous, horrendous crimes. And so it's quite unlikely that I'll be able to be called to the bar until after this trial. But as I said, you know, the prosecution isn't pursuing this with the vigor that you'd expect someone to do if they believed we were actually guilty. They have waited as long as possible. The only reason that we went to trial in November of last year is because the statute of limitations on misdemeanors was expiring. That is, I'm being charged with crimes dating all the way back to 2016. The fact that I wasn't on the island of Lesvos in 2016 doesn't seem to be an issue. But it means that the five years was lapsing, and that's why they went to trial. The problem is that with felonies, those are 20 years. That's a further 15 years we'd have to
0: wait.
1: 20-year statute of limitations. for felonies. And given that they've waited the full statute of limitations period for the misdemeanors, there's no reason to think that they would pursue these anytime quickly because they're getting what they want. That is causing incredible amount of pain and financial cost that is a burden and a threat to anybody who would try to stop someone from drowning.
0: Do you regret seeking to help people in distress? If
1: my mother listens to this, then I'll have to say yes. But assuming as she doesn't listen to this, then no. I, I don't think we should. I don't think saying yes to that is right. Regret what? I mean, this is the most fundamental thing to do. Many of the listeners on this podcast surely would do the same. If you see someone in distress, you would help them. It's like the analogy that I often give it's like if you're, you happen upon the scene of a car crash and there's someone lying on the ground, say they're unconscious. You could do two things here the way that our prosecution has set it up. You can either check their pulse or their passport first. And I went ahead and checked their pulse first. If you do the same thing, then you've committed the same crime I have because you've said, you know what, it doesn't matter where they're from. They they probably shouldn't die, and I should probably help them. And, you know, once they're recovered, then the police can recover them and decide what to do with them. But they shouldn't die. That's the first thing we should focus on. I think that most people believe that to be true. And so I think we shouldn't regret doing it. You know, there's oftentimes the way it's framed. I get so much (laughs) hate mail and abuse saying like, oh, you're a scumbag or you're a human trafficking idiot or whatever. And then I also get a lot of very kind messages saying, oh, you're a hero. What you've done is fantastic. It's amazing. And not to be dismissive of the kind words that I receive, but those are problematic for the same reason. Because Both of them imply that it is not normal to help somebody. That is in some way special, either badly or in a good way. But that is not the truth. It is the most normal thing to help somebody in distress. I think that's the main point here. So no, I don't regret it. No one should regret it. And it is normal.
0: That's Sean Binder. And there's a link to Sean's Legal Crowdfunder on our podcast hosting page. Before we go, just a special word of thanks from me to all the people who help promote this podcast on social media. We don't have a marketing budget, so every share on Facebook, every retweet really does make a difference. We've had record listening figures in recent weeks, so thanks for spreading the word. And special thanks as well to Harvey White, who helps to produce the podcast. We wouldn't be here, though, without subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which funds our output. Your subs also help fund Byline TV and our fantastic news-breaking website, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. Just go to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already done so, thank you. Many thanks indeed for listening. I'm Adrian Goldberg. See you next time.